Joshua chapter 5. And it came to pass when all the kings of the Amorites, which were on the side of Jordan westward, and all the kings of the Canaanites, which were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of Jordan from before the children of Israel, until we were passed over, that their heart melted, neither was their spirit in them any more because of the children of Israel. At that time, the Lord said unto Joshua, Make thee sharp knives, and circumcise again the children of Israel the second time. And Joshua made him sharp knives and circumcised the children of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the cause or the reason why Joshua did circumcise. All the people that came out of Egypt that were males, even all the men of war, died in the wilderness by the way after they came out of Egypt. Now all the people that came out were circumcised. But all the people that were born in the wilderness, by the way, as they came forth out of Egypt, them they had not circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people that were men of war, which came out of Egypt, were consumed because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord, unto whom the Lord sware that he would not show them the land which the Lord sware unto their fathers that he would give us a land that flows with milk and honey. And their children, whom he raised up in their place, them Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them by the way. And it came to pass that when they had done circumcising all the people, that they abode in their places in the camp till they were made whole. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off you. Wherefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal unto this day. And the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at even in the plains of Jericho. And they did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow after the Passover, unleavened cakes and parched corn in the selfsame day. And the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten of the old corn of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna any more, but they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Tonight we're going to do one more study in this series of studies or topic of Wake Up America or Will America Wake Up? And the, 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 the subtitle of tonight's study or the purpose of it is to ask the question, what now? After talking to some of you and, and getting feedback from other people that listen to those studies in other ways um, the, the one reoccurring comment that came my way was that people felt a little bit frustrated. They felt extremely moved. They, they felt greatly informed. They felt awakened, but they felt like they had no direction. Like they felt like they didn't know what to do. Like what is to be the proper response? What does it look like in my life now that I've heard these things, now that I see these things, what should I do? 
there are three things that are abundantly clear after the last uh, two studies that we had. Number one is that the United States of America has forsaken God most clearly, at least as a collective body, and forsaken her roots at the same time. The second thing is that the church of God is both the problem, at least in part, and also the solution. The Bible says that we are the salt of the earth. And part of what salt does is that salt preserves. And so part of our responsibility as the church is to preserve the light that God gives. And so the fact that we've fallen so far, in part, lays upon us the responsibility for that. But we're not just the problem, we're also the solution. Because the Bible says that we are the light of the world. And so light shines in darkness, exposes the evil of it, and gives direction to what is the good and the right way. And so the world is a mess, our country is a mess. The church is at fault, but the church is also the solution. And then the third thing that's abundantly clear is that many of us have a desire to do something about it. We want to be used by God in these days to make a difference in our country and in our world. But what is still unclear is that now that we see the problem and that we've taken the long look in the mirror, what do we do now as individuals and as a church collectively to make a difference? And that's an extremely difficult question to answer, and here's why. Because the answer for each of us individually is as different as the look on our faces or as the thumbprint that we have that's so different between all of us. We all belong to God and every one of us has a different calling and a different purpose and a different set of gifts. And so what it looks like for us to respond and make a difference in our world is going to look different for every single one of us. And as I pointed out last week, that even in the Bible, the examples of those that stood in the gap, those that made a difference in their generation, in their culture, no two of them looked the same. For Moses, it was literally standing in front of God and saying, God, if you want to judge this people, then you've got to kill me first. And that was enough. That stopped the wrath of God. For Isaiah, it was being sent with a message that would cost him his life to deliver. And he took that message and he delivered it. And it cost him his life. For Daniel, it was different. And for others in the Bible, we see with Ezra and Nehemiah and the rest that that we looked at, for all of them was something different. And so too, it will also be for us. It's going to be different. And so it's impossible on one hand for me to sit here and say to you that this is what you ought to do in order to make a difference in the world, in order for you to stand in the gap. Because I don't know how God is going to lead you and what he has equipped you for. But on the other hand, There are certain things that are universal. There are certain things that apply to every single one of us that if we are in the right position, the position that God would have us to be in, or in the place where he has our attention, then it frees him to be able to lead us and to direct us and guide us so that we might be effective in the thing that he is calling each of us individually to do. So what are those things? The scene that we have before us in Joshua chapter 5 is the children of Israel, after they've come out of Egypt, and after now they've wandered in the wilderness without purpose and without direction for a period of 40 years. It's been 40 years since God has done any real powerful work amongst this nation 
that he has called out to be a representation and a reflection of himself. They had been miraculously delivered from Egypt. God opened up the Red Sea and he led them through by the hand of Moses. He buried the Egyptian army under the waters of it. And he brought them then into a place where he gave them his law, fed them for 40 years with manna that fell from heaven. They saw his works. But because of their unbelief and their unwillingness to then go into Canaan and fight, and because of their fear, God said that I'm not going to bring you in until the entire generation of the men of war dies off. The children will go in because I will keep my promise. But the men of war will die off. And also Moses was not allowed to go into the land because of his failure to represent God at the rock when God said, speak to the rock, and he smote the rock instead. And so for 40 years, the children of Israel have been wandering now in the wilderness, waiting to go into the land. And Moses dies, the men of war die, and Joshua is raised up as Moses' successor, and he brings the children of Israel into the land. They cross over the Jordan River on dry ground. It's the second time that God has opened up a river or a waterway and brought his people through. The Jordan River had separated them from coming into the land and God miraculously opened it up and they were then brought through that river and into now what the Bible calls the promised land. Now in the New Testament, in second, or no, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul tells us, and listen, hang, hang with me for just a moment, that when the children of Israel crossed through the Red Sea, when they left Egypt and Pharaoh's army was buried, that that crossing of the Red Sea was a spiritual picture of water baptism for the New Testament believer. He says that they were all baptized unto Moses in the Red Sea. They were brought out of the old life of Egypt they passed through the waters and they were saved from destruction as they passed through the Red Sea. It was a picture of baptism, the Bible tells us, a picture of salvation for you and me. But then when they crossed through the Jordan River, the second time they passed through the water, that also has a spiritual application for the New Testament Christian for you and I. And it's the first thing tonight that I want to draw to your attention and to our attention as we consider what is absolutely necessary for you and I if we're going to make a difference in our generation and in our world. If you and I are going to stand in the gap, then the first thing that is absolutely essential is that every one of us be walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit's power within our lives. The Bible teaches that for you and I, there is a baptism that is separate from our water baptism that we experienced when we first got saved. In Luke's gospel, chapter 3, when John the Baptist was fulfilling his ministry and bringing forth Jesus onto the scene, and the question was posed to him whether or not he were the Christ. They said, are you the Christ? Tell us, are you the Messiah? And John the Baptist responds to that as he says that there comes one after me that is more mightier than I, the latchet of whose sandal I am not even worthy to unloose. I baptize you with water, John says, but he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. 
John mentions in his announcement or his bringing forth of Jesus to the nation of Israel that there is a baptism that Jesus would give to his people called the baptism of the Holy Spirit, a baptism of fire. Now, we read about this continually throughout the ministry of Jesus as it comes up from time to time. In John's Gospel, chapter 7, when Jesus went up to the Feast of Tabernacles, at first in secret, but then he showed himself openly, it tells us that on the last day, the great day of the feast, that Jesus stood up in the midst and he shouted forth in the presence of them all, and he said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. For he that believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly or his innermost being will flow torrents of living water coming from within. And then John explains what Jesus meant by that in the next verse. And he says, this spake he of the Holy Spirit, which was not yet given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And so Jesus spoke of the Spirit's power or the flow of living water that would come out of the life of the believer, but that yet yet wasn't present because Jesus had not yet died and risen from the dead. And so it was something that was coming, but it was something that was yet future. To Jesus' disciples individually in John's Gospel, the 14th chapter, in verse 15, As Jesus is giving a promise concerning the coming of the Spirit, he says, if any man loves me, then he will keep my commandments. And I will pray to the Father, and he will give to you another comforter that will abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it sees him not and doesn't know him. But he says that you know him, and listen to what Jesus says, because he dwells with you And he shall be, notice that it's future tense, in you. The spirit dwells with you, but he shall be in you. Something that's coming in the future. And so Jesus lets them know that, listen, right now, the Holy Spirit is in the world, but he's dwelling outside of you. There's something happening. There's an interaction between you and the spirit, but it's completely external in nature. He's on the outside and he's knocking on your heart. He works through your conscience, convincing you that there's got to be more. He opens your eyes to see things in the world that give you evidence that this isn't just an accident, that we're not all here by some scientific thing that just happened, but there's reason, there's purpose, there's design, there's sense. There's a difference between man and animal. All of those things, the Holy Spirit awakens in the conscience, but he does it all from the outside while he stands and knocks. But Jesus said there's going to be a day that comes when the Spirit is no longer on the outside, but the Spirit comes on the inside. Well, that day came after Jesus died and rose. It's recorded in John chapter 20. And in verse 20, Jesus had appeared to the disciples after the resurrection before he ascended into heaven, before the day of Pentecost came. And as he was with them there in the room, he appeared before them all and they were amazed at his presence. And his word to them was this. He said, peace be with you. And then it says in John chapter 20, verse 20, it says that then Jesus breathed on them and he said, receive ye the Holy Ghost. Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, let me ask you a question. 
If Jesus breathes on you and says, receive the Holy Spirit, what happens? You receive the Holy Spirit. At that moment, when Jesus spoke those words and breathed that breath, all of those that were there that day were filled with the Holy Spirit. He went from being an external entity to being something that was an internal reality. He was inside of them for the very first time. And so he had been with them, the Spirit. Now he dwelt in them, but listen to me. There was one more thing that the Holy Spirit had yet to do with them. Because after that event, when Jesus breathed on them, one of the final things that he said before he ascended into heaven, it's recorded in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says this. He says, but tarry in Jerusalem or wait in Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. He says, you will receive power after that the Holy Spirit is come upon you. And then you will be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. Now hang with me for just a minute here. Notice this. They had already received the presence of the Holy Spirit living inside of them. But after that, Jesus said, listen, go lock yourselves in an upper room. Don't try to do anything. Don't talk to anyone. Don't start a church or plant one. Write a book or start a radio program. Do nothing. Go lock yourselves in an upper room and wait until the promise of the Father comes, which I will send once I get back home. Don't do anything until I get there. And so then he commissions them. He walks out to the Mount of Olives. He goes to heaven. Ten days later, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says that when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all gathered with one accord in one place there, and it says that suddenly there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind that filled the room and each one of them was filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. On that day, the Spirit came upon the church, the power of the Holy Spirit to serve God effectively and to fulfill the commission that Jesus had given them was endued or given to them on that day when the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. And from that time forward, that group of 120 disciples proceeded to turn the known world upside down, starting in Jerusalem and then moving to Samaria, somewhat to the north, and then or Judea and then to Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And you and I are a direct result of what took place on that first day of Pentecost. Now, when Peter preached the sermon that followed that event, and it's all recorded in Acts chapter 2, he said in verse 38 of chapter 2, he said these words. He said, if you will repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, and listen, the promise is unto you and to your children, even as many as are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God will call. In other words, the promise of Holy Spirit power in our lives to be witnesses for Christ and to make a difference for his name is something that has been promised to every single one of us. Sadly, there are many people that are born again that have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. They're saved. Their names are written in heaven. 
but they're not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit manifested upon their lives as a witness for themselves. We see that that was something that took place even in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 8, we see that Philip was leading a revival in the city of Samaria. And it says that Peter and John came into the, to the city to see the work that was going on there. And it says that when Peter and John arrived there, it says that they laid hands on the believers and prayed that they would receive the Holy Spirit because although they had been baptized and saved, it says that the Holy Spirit had fallen upon none of them as of yet. And so they were prayed for and the Spirit came upon them. In Acts chapter 19, the Apostle Paul goes into the region of Ephesus. And he finds a group of 12 disciples there and he sees them by the river and he observes that their lives are not empowered. There's something lacking. There's something missing. And so he asks them the question. He says, have you received the Holy Ghost since you've believed? And they said, we don't even know what you're talking about. We've been baptized. We certainly do believe, but we don't know what you're saying. And so it says that Paul laid his hands on them and he prayed for them. And it said that the Spirit came upon them And they began to speak with other tongues. And the church that was birthed as a result of that meeting was one of the greatest and most powerful churches in all of the New Testament. One of the most fruitful works of God that was there. But it didn't happen until the Holy Spirit came upon them. So why is it that a Christian, someone who has the Spirit of God living inside of them, would lack Holy Spirit power within their lives? There's really three reasons. And they're all kind of one and the same. In some way, they're all interrelated. Number one is that sometimes a Christian doesn't have the power of God within their life because of unholy living. Jesus said, if any man loves me, he'll keep my commands and I will pray the Father and we will give to him another comforter, the Spirit of truth. The Bible says that it's possible to grieve the Holy Spirit of God, that he's not a power or a force, he is a person. And that he can be grieved when we walk contrary to what we know the will of God to be. And when the spirit is grieved, that grief is felt by us because he lives in us and his power is absent from our lives. And so we can miss out on the spirit's power in our lives because of unholy living that can happen that we can can, uh, have. Another reason why people lack the power of the spirit in their life is because they're unwilling to be used by God. You can call it an unsurrendered attitude or an unsurrendered heart. The purpose of the Spirit's power within our lives is that we might be witnesses for Him. And so therefore, if I'm not willing to be a witness for Him, if I'm not willing to exercise the work of the Spirit out of my life, then God doesn't pour the Spirit through my life. I was jogging with one of my kids just a couple days ago, and a bird landed on a power line right in front of us. And they asked the question, why doesn't the bird vaporize? when it lands on the power line. If we did that, we'd die. And I said, well, the reason is because electricity needs to have both an inlet and an outlet. If it doesn't have both, it won't go in. And so that's why they work on those great big power lines from helicopters, because all they have to do is attach off, and then they can touch the lines freely, and they, they, they can't be electrocuted because they're not connected to ground. There's the potential for inflow, but there's no potential for outflow, and therefore it doesn't go in. And the power of the Holy Spirit works in much the same way is that if I'm not willing to let the power of God flow out of my life, then it doesn't flow into my life. 
And so sometimes it's not a matter of unholy living. Sometimes it's a matter of a lack of surrender. I'm not willing to be used by God, and therefore his power is strangely absent within my life. I believe that the third reason is the key reason, the main reason why there are so many Christians that are not walking and living in the power of God in their life. And it's the most simple of all three. It's because they just fail to ask. The Bible says that you have not because you ask not. The Bible says that all of the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. Meaning that if God makes a promise in the scripture, then you and I have an entitlement as his people, his sons and daughters, to call upon those promises and expect that God is going to fulfill them. Peter said it was a promise. He said the promise is unto you and to your children and as many as are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And so therefore it's a promise from God. Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, he said that if you being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those that ask? I believe that for many, the very simple reason why they're not walking in the power of God is because they have not come to God realizing that such a thing is even possible and asked him to use their lives and to manifest his power through their lives. And here's what I found, is that when a person will come to that place and say, God, no matter the cost, no matter what it will mean, no matter where you will lead, no matter what you will do within my life, I am willing, will you fill me with your Holy Spirit? That God not only answers that prayer, but in answering that prayer, he automatically takes care of the other two issues. Unholy things vaporize automatically. Psalm 110 verse 3 says that he makes his people willing in the day of his power. Meaning that when his power comes upon our life, all of a sudden our will is present to lay aside things that don't belong there anymore. When his power is manifested in our lives, we become willing automatically to go where he would lead and to do what he would ask of us. Nothing restricted, nothing held back. I ask you this tonight. Have you ever come to God? Maybe you're born again. You've been walking with God. But have you ever come to God and said, God, I have never even known that this is a power that you can give to me and that you can use me with in a supernatural way. And God, tonight, right now, I ask you in Jesus' name to endue me with power from on high, to take me across the waters of the Jordan River and to begin to lead and guide and steer my life in the way that you led Peter's life and Paul's life and all of those that we read about throughout the New Testament and all of church history. And would you do with me, God, things that I could never ask, think, or imagine for myself or plan out in my life? Have you ever done that? Because I tell you this, that it's a promise from God. And if you would ask, I know that God would meet you. But until you and I cross the Jordan River, not just the Red Sea, It's not just coming into the wilderness and wandering throughout our whole life, hearing laws and eating manna and living for God, but yet not knowing why. But it's in the crossing of the Jordan River, the entering into Holy Spirit power for our lives, yielding all that we are to him and saying, God, whatever you want to do with my life, I'm willing. Do it. Work in me. I am yours. You have all of me. Give me all of you. God will answer that prayer. That's the first thing that we see in the children of Israel. It's amazing when you consider in Joshua chapter 5, the text of scripture, the parallels between where they were at and where we were at. 
In many ways it was different, but in some things it was very much the same. They were a nation that was facing an insurmountable task. They had to dispossess an entire country of heathens. And then they had to subdue it, distribute it, and settle it and claim it for God. That's very much like what we're facing, isn't it, as we sit here tonight? I mean, we're a church, and you look at the church amongst the nation right now. We're such a small thing, and it seems like we have nothing. We're no influence at all. We have no weapons of war. We have no formal training. We don't know what we're doing. We know the answer isn't going to be through politics, and we wouldn't have a chance at influencing that even if we could. But yet we read that God wants to use us to turn our nation upside down. How in the world are we going to do that? That was exactly what the children of Israel were feeling as they crossed the Jordan River. And it's where you and I sit. And listen, step one right now is to be filled with the power of God, that every resource of heaven's disposal be at work within our lives, and that God is able to use us in any way that he wants. Have you crossed the Jordan River? If you haven't, then it means you're wandering in the wilderness. Will you waste your life wandering and come to the end of it and have nothing to show? Or will you let God take you across the water on dry ground and bring you into the fullness, even though the task on the other side is bigger than you are? The children of Israel crossed over. But they didn't stop there. There was more that they did. As they waited for God to then use them to dispossess the nation of the heathen and then to distribute it and settle it and claim it for God, there's three other things that they did in this chapter to prepare their own hearts. After crossing Jordan, there were three other things that they did. And that's where our study continues as well. And we ask the question, what can we do? How can I be used of God? How can he use me in these days? The second thing after crossing the Jordan River is that we're told that they were circumcised for the second time. And I'll spare you the agony of reading those verses over again as we kind of see the, the text and then get a picture in our mind and wonder what in the world was that like. But we're told that they were circumcised. God gave to Abraham the covenant of circumcision when he first called him, way, 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 way before this time. And he said, this will be the sign of the covenant that I'm making with you and with your descendants after you. And that will be that there will be the cutting away of the foreskin. And I will recognize every male among you that is circumcised, and I will not recognize every male among you that is not. And you look at it and you say, what a strange thing. Why in the world would God ask that of his people? I mean, it's awkward for us to think about it, for us to read it. Think about what it's like for me to sit up here and talk about it. You know, I mean, I had to read the words, the hill of foreskins. What in the world is that, you know? Some people are even looking down right now. You can't make eye contact me with me when we're even talking about this. Why does God do this? What does it mean? The Apostle Paul sheds light on it in the New Testament book of Romans. In Romans chapter 2, of course, it's the one place I didn't earmark. Romans chapter 2, in the last two verses, the Apostle Paul describes for us the spiritual significance of what circumcision represents. He says, for he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. In other words, circumcision was never about the physical act. It always represented something more. And then he tells us what it is. He says, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. 
And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. In other words, the significance and the power and the life that was in circumcision was not in the physical, fleshly cutting off, but rather it's in the spiritual cutting off of the flesh that exists on the inside, the invisible nature. The Bible says that we are three-part beings. We are body, soul, and we are spirit. And Paul the Apostle tells us in Romans chapter 6 that our body is dead because of sin. He even goes as far as to say, who will deliver me from this body of death? The Bible tells us that when we're raptured or when we die, we have to get new bodies to be in the presence of the Lord because this body has been so racked and defiled by sin. And so circumcision represents the cutting away of the old life or of the fleshly life, the putting down of the self-life and the living completely in the spiritual life. And it tells us that the children of Israel now endued with power and given a commission and having a task that they were now circumcised for the second time because there was a new generation that wasn't there when they left Egypt that it had never happened within their life. And so what's the application for you and me tonight? Here's what it is. What is it in your life right now that is of the flesh that you are still living after? What is it of the old nature that still has a hold on your life, that fleshly inclination that you keep on giving yourself to or that you can't let go of, or that is such a part of your life that is restricting you from knowing the fullness of God's usefulness within your life. God would say, cut it out. Cut it off. Let the inward life, the secret place, let it be circumcised. Let go of those things and prepare yourself to be completely used by me. The Holy Spirit does not compete with our flesh. If we choose to let the flesh, our old man, rule and reign our lives, the Holy Spirit patiently sits aside waiting for the time when he's given control of our life. And we have the call, we make the call, which of those two entities, the spirit or our own flesh, is going to rule and reign within our life. And circumcision for you and me is when we come to that place where we say, God, whatever needs to be cut off in my life, let it be cut off. I want to live completely for you. And this circumcision that the children of Israel went embracing at this time in their history was a symbol. It was a statement that they were making before God is that, God, my life is completely yours. And let there be nothing of the old life that stands before you, but let all of it die. Understand that sometimes there's some pain involved in that. I believe that that's why God made circumcision circumcision. Every time we read about it in the scripture, we read not only of the circumcision, but we also read about the recovery period. The men of Shechem that agreed to be circumcised were circumcised, and then there was a recovery period. We read here about, or we read in Genesis about the men in Abraham's house that were circumcised, and then there was a recovery period. We read here about the men who were circumcised, and then there was a recovery. Listen, when you cut off your flesh and you begin to say no to things, sometimes there's some pain involved and there's some recovery involved. It takes a few days. It takes a little bit of a fight, a little bit of agony. But listen, on the other side, it's worth it because of the spiritual reaping that it yields to us in the power of God within our lives. They allowed themselves to be circumcised.
The next thing that we're told that they did here in preparation for God to use their lives, it's in verse 10, and it's just one thing singularly. It says that they realized upon recovering from this um, procedure, they realized in looking at their, their you know, um, iPads and their phones, their calendar, their schedule, they realized that it was the 14th day of the first month. And they realized that that was the day that the Bible says that they are to keep the Passover. And being that it was that very day and that it was something that God told them that they were to do, it says that on that day, they kept the Passover. It was something that they had left off doing during the time that they were wandering in the wilderness. But on that day, they kept it. You say, what's the significance of that uh, in in light of um, what they were embarking upon and, and even more so for you and I, what difference does all of that make? Here's what it is. Is that they began to intentionally be obedient to the scripture is that they realized that there was something that was written, something that God had willed and commanded in the word of God that they had the ability to obey right now to give themselves to, and they did it. They were obedient in it. And I believe that that's a real important thing for you and I as we would seek God to use our lives in in a richer and fuller way than maybe he is, is that we make an intentional decision and priority out of being obedient to the things that God says within his word. Now, I'm sure that if I asked right now and I said, let's by show of hands ask, how many of you read your Bibles every day? And I, and I don't want you to raise your hands here. you know. But if, if I were to do that, I think that probably on a you know, Wednesday night group, most of us would raise our hands. And we would say in some form, even if it's a little bit, we, we, we do read our Bibles every day. But let me ask you this. How many of us read the Bible with the intention of doing the things that we read, of coming to the scripture and saying, God, what is it that you would challenge my heart with today that I might be obedient in, that I might listen to what it is that you have to say and not just simply be a hearer of your word, but to be a doer of the word of God. What is it that you would have me to do in this thing right now? In Ezekiel chapter 33, just a few chapters from where we read last week, Ezekiel was preaching to a group of people that were facing imminent judgment. And he thought that he was making progress. He was bringing the message of God, and he thought that he was really getting through to the people. And then God came and and spoke to him, and God said these words. He said in uh, chapter 33, verse 30, he said, Also, son of man, the children of thy people still are talking about you, by the walls and in the doors of the houses. And they speak one to another, every one to his brother, saying, come, I pray you, and hear what is the word that comes forth from the Lord. They're inviting people to your Bible studies. They're gathering around when you speak. And they come unto thee as the people come. And they sit before you as my people. And they hear your words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love but their heart goeth after their covetousness. And lo, you are unto them as a very lovely song of one that has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do them not. And when this comes to pass, lo, it will come, then shall they know that a prophet has been among them. God brings to Ezekiel the reminder of the reality that there are many and it can happen to every one of us, that we become hearers of the word of God, experts concerning the things of God, 
but we fail to be doers of the word of God. The apostle James, in his letter to the churches, writes the same thing. He says, but do not simply be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. It isn't him that hears that will be blessed, but him that is a doer of the word, he will be blessed within his word. My challenge to you tonight, if you are one that says, God, I want to be used and I want to make a difference in my world, become one who reads the Bible continually, intentionally. Meaning that you're not reading to gain information. You're not reading simply out of curiosity to hear what it says, but you're reading motivated by a desire to be a doer of the things that the Bible teaches. Read Ephesians chapters 4 and 5 and see what the Bible says, that this is the walk of the believer. This is what our lives are to look like. And then pray those things in and turn from where you're failing and walk in what is right. Read Colossians chapter 3 and 4. Read Galatians chapter 5 that talks about the fruit of the flesh or the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Read 1 John, where John gives explicit instruction to the walk of the believer and the internal nature that we're to have and begin to say, God, do these things in me and let me today be a doer of the things that you say and not simply a hearer of it. As God sees that kind of mindset in a believer, he begins to take up and work within that life. So not only did they cut away the flesh, but they also gave themselves to the word of God and to obedience to the word of God, more importantly. The third thing that they did is, is spoken to us in verses 11 and 12 there in Joshua chapter 5. And that is that they began to eat the food or the fruit of the land of Canaan. Now, hang with me here, and we're almost finished. For 40 years, the children of Israel had been eating this manna, this bread that had come down from heaven and that every day was on the ground for them six days a week and on the seventh day or the sixth day they would gather twice as much and every day they would eat this manna that had fallen from heaven. But upon entering into the promised land, upon entering into their destiny, the thing that God had called them to, they began to eat a different food. They began to eat the food and the fruits, the produce of that land, the land of Canaan. And when they did, listen, the manna that they had been eating previously stopped. And there was a new food source that had come into the lives of those believers. You say, is there a spiritual correlation between the food of Canaan, the produce of that land, and the New Testament believer and us walking in the fullness of God's power and his spirit within our life? The answer is yes. There absolutely is. The manna for us in the New Testament represents the bread of life, the word of God. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And certainly the scripture, as we read it and take it in, it is a source of spiritual food and sustenance for us. It's an essential. It's something that we live by every day. But did you know that for the New Testament believer, there's another source of food as well? When Jesus was in his ministry and he was in the city of Samaria, we're told in John chapter 4 that he must needs, he was driven to pass through the city of Samaria. No Jew would do that intentionally. They would go around it, even if it meant going all the way down to the Jordan Valley and walking up the river. Jews hated Samaritans. But Jesus had a reason he needed to be in Samaritan, and so it says he was driven. He must needs go into the city of Samaria. And so Jesus goes into that city, and he meets a woman there by a well. 
in the middle of the day. And the only reason a woman would be at a well in the middle of the day, which was not the time of gathering water, is because she was an outcast and that she wasn't accepted by those that would be there at the time of day when normally people would go to draw water. But Jesus meets this woman by this well. And the disciples had gone into the city to buy food. And so it's just Jesus and this woman. And he engages her in a conversation, which she is amazed by because Jews don't talk to Samaritans. And he begins to talk to her about her life. And he says, says to her, you know, if you knew who it was that, that was asking water from you, then you would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. And she talks to him a little bit more and he ends up leading her to himself, to a saving knowledge of himself. He says, you haven't had one husband, you've had five husbands and the man that you're dwelling with now is not your husband. And it says that the woman dropped her water bucket, incredible picture. And she goes back to the village and she goes to the men there and she says, come and see a man which told me everything I've ever done, which would certainly be alarming to those men knowing the background of this woman. But when the disciples came back, they saw Jesus talking to this woman and it says that they marveled that he was talking to a woman. No one dared ask him why he was speaking with her. But after the awkwardness of that moment and the woman now departs, they ask him the question. They said, have you eaten any food? Have you had anything yet to eat? And Jesus looked at them with a smile on his face. And he said this. He said, I have food to eat that you know nothing of. And it tells us there that they looked at each other puzzled like, did you bring him food? Where did he get food? We were the ones that were sent to get food. And then Jesus knew that they were confused. And so he says to them, I think it's in verse 34. He says, my food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Now, I don't know if you have ever experienced this in your Christian life, but there is a satisfaction that comes from God using your life, from something that he does with you to maybe lead someone to Christ or to share a Bible study or to do something that capitalizes on the gifts and the specific calling that he has for you. And God just uses you and he shows up in a supernatural way. And there is something so satisfying about being in his will and being used by him in that way that you're not even interested in food. You could go into that experience starving, but you come out of it completely satisfied, not even thinking about food at all. And what Jesus is saying to them here is that what is even more satisfying to me than my daily food that I would eat is to know that I am in the will of God and that he is using my life in a powerful way. So what is that for you and I? What does it mean for the New Testament Christian to eat the produce of Canaan or the food of the spirit-filled life? It's that we live our lives in the intentional desire to walk in his will that we live in the awareness that he has something that he wants to do with me, with my life today, and that he's going to do it, and that that is my life. That is the food of the New Testament Christian, to be walking, carefully seeking out personally, God, what do you want me to do today, and then doing it. That is the food of the New Testament Christian. And that is something that every one of us has the potential and the capacity to do, but most of us don't. We expect that tomorrow is going to be the same as today, the same routine, that we, and we all go through it. We all have a routine. There's something that we, we go through and we live. But what would happen 
If we began to live life spiritually and we began to say, God, what do you want to do with my life today? And when the open door came, we took advantage of it and we walked through it. There would be a new dynamic in our lives absolutely and for sure. And so how can you and I be prepared to be used by God when the time comes that he knocks and he says, I've got something for you. You prayed the prayer that you wanted to stand in the gap, that there was something that you would stand for. And here it is. Number one, are you walking in the fullness of God's power and his spirit within your life? Number two, is the flesh continually being circumcised and cut out that the spirit might reign supreme within your life? Number three, is the word of God a priority, not just in the reading and the hearing of it, but in the intentional doing and seeking to do what it is the Bible tells us to do. And number four, is the will of God for your life today and what he would use you and me for as we would walk with him, is that a priority and something that we look for and walk in and seek out and do? That is what the children of Israel did. And what followed was the success of their purpose. Now, you can read on in the chapter, and there's even more than those three things. What happens next is that Joshua has an encounter with the captain of the host of the Lord. And the lordship of Jesus Christ is again established within his life and his ministry. Joshua goes from being the captain of his own purpose to yielding leadership and lordship to Jesus alone. It's a real key. It's something that's essential in our lives as well. The next thing that happens as you get into chapter 6 is that Jesus gives them a commission and a command that is contrary to all human logic. He says, this is the way Jericho is going to fall. Walk around the city once a day for seven days. And then on the seventh day, walk around the city seven times and then have everyone blow their trumpets and all the walls are just going to fall down. That's a great plan, Lord, but how am I going to sell this to the rest of the people? So what is that for you and I? It's absolute obedience to him even in the small things that don't make sense. You see, God's not going to specifically come and say, hey, Matt or Bill or whatever, Isaac, this is what God's got for you. This is what you're supposed to do. This is how you stand in the gap. But he does lay before us these things and he says, listen, there is a path. It is narrow and it's as straight as an arrow. And I've put my will there. And I've put my word and my commands. And I've laid something out for you. And if you will walk in this path, the old path, the Bible calls it, and if you'll set yourself in that place, then you're going to find yourself walking in my purpose for your life. And when purpose meets time, you're going to see that I'm going to use you in the very thing that I made you for. And the fruitfulness that's going to come out of that is going to be beyond anything that you could ask, think, or imagine. Unfortunately, there's far too many Christians that are meandering rather than walking. If we want to be used by God in the days that we live in, it's essential that we be walking in his purpose and ready for his plan. God wastes nothing that is laid at his feet and offered to him in sacrifice. He makes the most of it and he makes more of it than what we could ever make ourselves. In Ezekiel chapter 47, there's an incredible picture there given of this life that you and I are called to live. Ezekiel sees a vision there and he sees a river 
the mouth of which proceeds from under the door of the threshold of the temple of God. And from that door, this water begins to flow out. And as it flows, it just grows deeper and deeper and deeper and wider and vaster and broader. And the angel who Ezekiel sees in the vision takes him by the hand and leads him to the brink of the river right at the mouth, right where it's coming out from under the threshold of the temple. And he says, get in the water. And Ezekiel gets in the water and he sees that the depth of the water is only up to his ankles. And then he gets out, he comes back to the shore. Then the angel takes him by the hand and he leads him a span down the river to where it's a little bit deeper. And he says, get in the water again. And he gets in for the second time and he sees that the depth of the water is now up to his knees. And he comes back to the shore and the angel takes him down and they walk another span. And he says, get in the water again. And he gets in and the water is up to his waist. And he comes back out and he walks him down another span. And he takes him to one more point. And Ezekiel tells us there, he says that when he brought me to that point, I saw that the depth of the river was beyond the height of a man, that it was a river that must be swam in, it's water that goes over the head. And the angel asked the question, son of man, do you perceive this? And Ezekiel doesn't get in the water at that point. He's not told to by the angel. And the story ends right there. That's the end of the vision as he is brought by the angel to that point and he's given an ultimatum. You say, what is the purpose of that? Here's what it is for you and me. Is that every one of us, if you're here tonight and you know Jesus Christ personally, you've given your life to him as savior. Every one of us has set foot in that water. We have walked in it. We've gotten our feet wet. We've allowed the living water that comes from God to come over our feet. Some of us have walked deep enough to go in up to our knees. Knees in the Bible always speaks of prayer. And we've developed a prayer life. We talk to him. We commune with him. Some of us have gone up to the waist. But in all of our getting in and out of the river, we've had control. We've gotten in. We've gotten out as we've seen fit. We've walked around. We've experienced as much as we want. But there comes a point for every one of us that God brings us to a point, a place, a precipice where we see the water again and God looks into our hearts and he communes with our soul and he implants with us the understanding that if we're going to get into the river at this point, we no longer control where we get in and where we get out, if we get in or if we get out. If we get in here, wherever the river goes, we go. That's life. And tonight as we consider where we live, In this day and time, as we consider the culture that we live in, as we consider the need, as we consider the fact that you and I wake up every morning in the day that we live in right now with a framework of Bible prophecy and the stage set for it in a way that has never existed in all of the history of the world up until this time. As we live in this day, God tonight brings us to that very precipice where he asks the question, I know that you have all of me, but do I have all of you? And are you willing to get into the river here? Because that's what it's going to cost. If you want to make a difference in the world that you live in today, it's not going to happen when you're knee deep or foot deep or waist deep, walking around in and out as you please. But are you willing to come to me and say, God, no matter what the cost, no matter where the river goes, 
no matter how narrow, no matter how much it meanders, whether it turns left or right, whether it goes where I want or whether it doesn't, God, I trust you with the complete contents of my life. And God, I want to go where you would lead. That's where it begins. That's where you and I find the purpose that God has for our life. There are two things that are potentially very troubling uh, to me in the days that we live in right now. The first is this. The first would be to be facing what it is that we're facing in the world that we live in today without an understanding of the scripture. If I couldn't look at the world that we live in today through the lens of the Bible and what God said things would look like, I would be crazy. I would be I would be so scared if I had, I would be one of those people that when you said, are you following what's going on in the world? My answer to you would be, no, I'm not. I, do, I can't. I don't look at it. I don't turn it on. I don't watch it. It scares the daylights out of me. And I would ignore it completely if I couldn't look at it through the framework of scripture that God has everything completely in control just the way that he wants it. That would potentially wipe me out to not have that lens. Here's the other thing. And probably the greater thing that, that, would, uh, that, that torments me about the days that we live in. And that is this. And that is to be living in these days as significant as they are. And to be sitting on the sidelines. And to one day come to the potential reality or to come to the reality that I was living in these days and that I didn't allow God to use my life. To see them for what they are when we see them for what they are and to know that I could have made a difference and that God put me in the world at such a time as this, but that I wasted it on selfish living, on pursuing my own things, on giving God some, but not giving him all. That scares me. And I hope it scares you too. And I hope that tonight might be a night where you would say, God, I want to be filled with you. I want to be used of you. I want my life to count. Fill me with your power. Cut off this nasty flesh. Give me the word of God, not just in my ears, but in my feet. And let me walk in your will. Father, we pray tonight that as we conclude with this exhortation and this example of what you did so many years ago and how you took a group of people that was committed to you in this way. And though the task was great, they did subdue that land and it became your land. We pray tonight, Lord, that though we be a people that are small and weak, yet we know that you can do all things through us. And so, Father, tonight we ask, because you told us to ask, that we might be filled with a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit that you would do a work in our lives and in our midst that is unparalleled by anything that has been done before this time in church history up to these days. We pray for a mighty baptism of power from heaven, Lord, that we might turn our world upside down. Father, that you would shake us to the core, that you would make all things new in us again. Father, we so need you. Take these things, Lord, that we've heard. Give us wisdom, Lord. And that each one of us would stand before you someday and hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, help us. Empower us. 
and lead us. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.